the fruit of the Spirit is peace. The fruit of the Spirit is peace. When I was in sixth form at school, I participated in the school production of West Side Story. That production and the events surrounding it in Belfast at the heart of the Troubles have now been captured and immortalized in the book Bread Boy by Tony McCauley, who was also in the cast back in those days. And last night I had the chance to see some of that play recreated on stage at the Lyric Theatre and to have some of our 1980s cast reunite and meet members of the 2022 cast. The sights and sounds and hopes and fears of that era in Belfast were vividly recreated for us. As it has been with the recent death of David Trimble, these things have reminded many of us of a certain generation what life was like in our province 20 years ago, or 40 years ago, or 60 years ago. If you had surveyed the general population then and asked what Northern Ireland's greatest need was, peace would have featured high on the agenda. And yet it was a strange time. Peace was at one at the same time a self-evident need and yet a controversial one. For a while, I was our denomination's Youth Peace and Reconciliation Officer. I remember being invited to speak at a church, and the minister said to me half-jokingly, don't spend too much time talking about peace or you'll cause a fight. <laughs> now, there were phrases that illustrated for us that peace as we understood it could too easily become a cliché. Why can't we all just live at peace? Nor was peace an absolute. We would hear phrases like, peace but not at any price, or no peace without justice. Sometimes peace activists would be dismissed as naive. They would be opposed on political grounds or even at times on theological grounds, although, to be honest, I think it was usually political masquerading as theological. Now, none of this, of course, is unique to Northern Ireland. What would a true peace accord between Russia and Ukraine look like today? How can churches in North America be agents of peace in the midst of an increasingly vitriolic and partisan political landscape? And as we watch what's happening across the Atlantic, I find too many bells ringing in my own mind in terms of how easy it is for a church to become captive, not to the Lordship of Christ, but to a political ideology. We've seen that too, haven't we, in the Russian Orthodox Church? For us to forget or explain away the fundamental Christian truths that maybe we forgot or are still forgetting in our own land, that we are called to follow a Prince of Peace who has become our peace by, by destroying the dividing wall of hostility. A prince of peace who urges us, as we have just read, as far as it is possible to live at peace 
with all people, and who has given us His Spirit, the Spirit of peace. The fruit of the Spirit is peace. Now, of course, if we were to survey the population now and ask what Northern Ireland's greatest need is, I think perhaps that the answers would be different. Economic renewal, education, employment, international agreement with Europe. But as Christians, I'm sure we realize that important though all of these things are, none of them in and of themselves will necessarily give us the society that we are looking for. They may improve the economy, they may even improve the morality of the country, but that will not be a sufficient improvement. We're all too aware that just because paramilitaries have generally given up their guns and the bombers have gone quiet does not mean that we have achieved peace. Violent crimes continue. Eleven violent deaths in Northern Ireland in the past month. Domestic and sexual violence cases are spiraling upwards. Peace in our society, peace in our families, peace in our hearts, even peace in our churches is still a massive need. So what does it mean to live at peace? Can we experience it to exhibit the inner peace that is a fruit of God's Holy Spirit? That biblical peace, shalom, that indicates a deep harmony and inner wholeness. But as we consider this, I want us to look a little at a passage which highlights for us the centrality of peace for a spiritually healthy life and a healthy church life. Paul ends his letter to the Philippians. So you may want to look and keep that open, Philippians chapter 4. He ends that letter by focusing on this elusive quality and showing the Philippians and us the importance of peace with each other, peace within themselves, and peace with God. That amazing triad, peace in our relationships, peace within ourselves, and peace with God. The first peace that Paul wants the Philippians to experience is quite simple, peace in their own fellowship peace in their personal relationships. I plead with you, Odia, and I plead with Syntyche to agree to be literally of one mind. It's not the first time Paul has used that phrase. In Philippians, back in chapter 2, you're maybe familiar with that famous verse, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now, what I'm going to say may surprise you. The majority of church splits are not about doctrine. Peace is not a top-down thing. Anti-sectarian laws, church unity programs do very little to improve things at the grassroots because they don't deal with the heart of the issue. At the level of the church, I think we could probably get by with no more than half a dozen different broad and diverse denominations that suit our different personalities and our different convictions, whether it's about how a church should be run or, you know, what the Bible teaches on, on secondary matters. Episcopalian, Reformed, Pentecostal, Baptist, I think all Christians could live happily within those broad parameters, and yet churches continue to split and split and split. 
so that currently there are globally 45,000 different Christian denominations, not congregations, denominations. Why? Well, a number of years ago, a survey of several hundred people who had left churches discovered that, uh, and this is apart from relocation, that people who had left the church over an issue discovered that only 2% had left because of a major doctrinal disagreement. 98% had left because of something else, relational issues, authority difficulties, disagreement over everything from the style of music to somebody forgetting their child's birthday at the Sunday school. The real tragedy of disunity is not that different denominations exist. That's a, a natural reflection of our diversity as human beings. The real tragedy to the gospel is that constantly within congregations there is disunity, and that that disunity spills out into more and more fragmentation. Even the church at Philippi, Paul's least troublesome church, the church that Paul, you can, you can hear his heart, he loves these people. Even they experience this. In fact, I believe that there is every chance that the main reason the book of Philippians was written was because two women fell out. The way ancient letters were structured is a bit different from how we would write letters today, and it's a, it's a world away from how we would write emails. When we're writing letters, if we still do, there's the basic courtesy, how are you doing, how are the family, and then we get down to the business of the letter. I think emails is even less. Emails is basically, oi, where's that report I wanted yesterday? But ancient letters, especially friendship letters like this one from to, to, Philippi, to Philippians, um, were structured very differently. Uh, if you bear with me a minute, I came across a very good synopsis of how, an old how a New Testament letter would be written. Um, so here is Monty's Guide to New Testament Pauline Theology uh, in five lines, okay? All you need to know, grace and peace I thank God for you, hold fast to the gospel, for the love of everything holy, stop being so stupid, and Timothy says hi. Okay, there you are. That's a New Testament letter in synopsis. Grace and peace, I thank God for you, hold fast to the gospel, for the love of everything, stop being so stupid, and Timothy says hi. So by this stage in the letter, we've got to the wise up stage. They were an art form, and when you'd actually said all that Paul has said already in Philippians, you get down to the nub of the matter. So if you read the rest of Philippians, you would see Paul talks about rejoicing in the successful ministry of other people who were his rivals and who were actually sometimes trying to do him harm. In chapter 1, he simply rejoiced that Christ was being preached. You would read a passage I quoted earlier from chapter 2 about doing nothing out of selfish ambition. Throughout the letter, there is this strand running through it, urging grace towards other people and peace and unity. Because in chapter 4, he gets to the issue. Yodia and Syntyche, wise up. In the name of all that's holy, stop being so stupid. Now, why was this disagreement so important to move Paul to write a letter? 
Well, I think it's because disagreement in the church distracts and drains the energy of church leaders. Disagreement in the church distracts and drains the energy of church leaders. If I think back to all my times at committee meetings and session meetings and, you know, one-to-ones and conversations, and I excised all the times we were dealing with people who had just fallen out or issues of conflict within the church, I would have a lot more time. Euodia and Syntyche are not the only two mentioned here. Paul asks someone else, a true companion, to help them work out their differences. We don't know who that was. Maybe it was possibly Luke, because we know from Acts that Luke was uh, spending quite a time in Philippi. And then a guy called Clement is also mentioned. Yuri and Syntyche weren't the only ones involved. Of necessity, when people fall out, it affects others. Friends, colleagues, co-workers. It isn't a case of, if it isn't a case of whose side are you on, it at least leads to awkwardness if people aren't been encouraged to take sides. And for the leaders, it takes up their time and energy to sort it out. And that's part of leadership. It needs to be sorted out because the church can't function to its optimum if conflict is going on. And yet vital energy is taken away from doing what the church should be doing and reaching those who haven't heard about Jesus. Both in my time as a minister and in a parachurch organization, I've been involved in mediation processes, and I, I can testify to what a time-consuming and difficult job that can be. It's never just you and him or you and her. Others are sucked into it into your disagreements. So it drains and distracts the energy of the church leaders. Disagreement also undermines previous faithful ministry. Euodia and Syntyche weren't just any two women. They were two prominent women who had been at the forefront of gospel witness, who had probably even shared in the planting of that church in the very early days. Imagine being Euodia or Syntyche and thinking of the ministry that you were doing in the church and being told by someone, hey, you will get a mention in the New Testament. Wow. Imagine being told that, that you're going to get a mention in the New Testament. And you wonder why many ways in which you contended for the gospel. I wonder, was it this ministry? I wonder, is it what I did there? I wonder, is it what I did here? And then you're told that you would make it into the Holy Bible because your only claim to fame for posterity was that you fell out with your friend. And yet we do Yodi and Syntyche a disservice if we imagine them as the baddies. These were good women. But if they didn't sort this out, their previous good work could be over, overshadowed. I know of several cases where an unresolved conflict in a church that maybe led to division or resignations has meant that the previous great ministry of those people had been forgotten. And people close to the situation will remember that. It's no longer George and Fred. They're the ones who led so many to Christ and built up such and such a church. 
It's George and Fred, or oh, they were the ones who fell out and caused that major split. It's no longer Emma and Sue. They're the ones who did so much work for such and such a congregation and in the community. It's Emma and Sue. Oh, they're the ones who had that row over what was said about their children and who caused division right through the church. Disagreement can undermine previous faithful ministry. Internal disagreement also shows a lack of vision, a lack of perspective. Throughout Philippians, Paul encouraged the church to think ahead to what lies in store for them in the eternal kingdom. In chapter 2, he finishes instructions to live at peace with one another by saying, be like Christ because there is coming a day when every knee shall bow before him. In chapter 3, he ends by saying, our citizenship is in heaven from where we await the Lord Jesus. And here in chapter 4, in the middle of these words to Euodia and Syntyche, he says, their names are written in the book of life. They're going to be sharing eternity together. That's the perspective to be had. Expand your vision, Euodia and Syntyche. Remember, your names are written in the book of life. You're going to be in heaven together, so sort it out. We forget this, don't we? To live above with saints we love, well, that is bliss and glory. But to live below with saints we know, well, that's a different story. We forget that as someone has described, living in God's kingdom on earth is living in the womb of heaven. So let's remove from our lives the agenda and the conflict, the vain conceit, as Paul would refer to it, because it's going to be gone in heaven anyway. Focus on what is eternal. Disagreements in the church display a lack of vision for who we are and who we will one day become. And we cause long-term damage because of short-term conflicts over things that will be forgotten in eternity. And then fourthly, Disagreements in the church will never be resolved in terms of winners and losers. Let's get down to the crux of the issue. This disagreement is mentioned in the Bible, so it must have been important, right? So what was the riot about? Well, no, we don't know. And the reason we don't know is because it must have been unimportant insignificant. If it had been an issue of doctrine, Paul would not have been slow to say that. If it had been an issue of morality, we would have known about it, but we don't. It's forgotten. Okay, then well, at least tell us who was right. Since Paul's getting involved, whose side was he on? Well, we don't know. And we don't know because it's not important. All he says is, I plead with you, Odia, and I plead with Santa to agree with one another in the Lord. He treated them as equals. He pleaded equally to both of them. It didn't matter who was right or wrong in this instance. Even if Odia had a, a genuine grievance, the fact that she was estranged from her sister meant that they were both in the wrong. You can be right in a particular issue, but if you are using your rightness as a means to keep you estranged from your sister or brother, you are in the wrong. In Luke's Gospel, we read of a man asking Jesus to intervene in a dispute between him and his brother. And in this case, it seems he had a justifiable grievance. 
But what does Jesus do? This Jesus who cares deeply about justice and preached against those who were oppressors, <laughs> he used the opportunity to speak into the heart of the man who had been wronged and said to him, guard your heart against all kinds of greed. He warned him that holding on to his grievance could have a spiritually cancerous effect on him. If we're involved in a conflict, let's watch out for what it's doing to us. It's interesting whether it's Jesus or Paul, we see them committed to justice for other people, but they never fight for it for themselves. In fact, Paul says, it's better to be wronged and to maintain a heart of grace and to display the fruit of the Spirit. We sometimes do this in pre-marriage prep when we're dealing with conflict relationships. We use the matrix, you know, win-lose, lose-win, lose-lose, win-win. And we show how issues are not as important as the relationship. You can win the issue and lose the relationship. With disagreements that are just resolved by looking at the issues, it's always lose-lose. Instead, we need to look for what will be the win-win situation, what will give shalom among God's people. And that's why, more briefly, we have need to learn what else Paul says in these verses, the secret of inner peace in our hearts and minds, verses 4 to 7. Rejoice, be gentle, don't worry, pray. Be gentle, honestly, I think sometimes that is such an under... Uh, valued word in today's society. It, it's, it's better in the ESV translation in this case, be reasonable. Let your reasonableness be evident to all. I'm waiting until I go into uh, a newsagent shop. I'm in the front of <coughs> FHM magazine or Lifestyle or Time magazine. I'm not seeing the top 100 sexiest women or the top 100 celebrities or the most powerful people or the rich list or the 10 people to watch in 2022. I wonder what it would be like to see in the front of one of those magazines the top 100 reasonable people, the top 100 gentle people. That's real celebrity. Paul's saying, let your gentleness be your fame. And don't be anxious. Jesus says it also in Matthew 6, doesn't he? Don't be anxious. But he doesn't leave us there. He helps us by, by framing that with a couple of things that will assist us. <clears throat> he says, don't be anxious, but be prayerful. I believe it's, it's impossible to have an anxiety-ridden life and a prayerful life. It doesn't mean that if we're prayerful, we still won't have cares or concerns, or even anxieties, but they will not control us to the same way. Make sure it is prayer that deals with our anxiety and not the other way around. And the other thing he gives us to help us is the little phrase, the Lord is near. What does that mean? Well, there's a lot in the book that indicates that he means that he's near and that he's coming back soon. We see that in other parts of, of Philippians. We wait for the Savior from heaven. He's on his way to usher, usher in his kingdom once and for all. Your names are going to be written in heaven. You're going to be there. The Lord is near, so agree. But there's also a lot in the book to suggest 
that the Lord is near and that he is amongst us. So don't fight because Jesus is there in the middle. That verse that we love to quote in Matthew 18, whenever two or three are gathered in your name, there you are in the midst. We love to quote that, you know, when not very many people have turned up at the prayer meeting. But that's not the context. If you read Matthew 18, it's in the context of conflict. When you're having to address an issue with a brother or a sister. And so that promise that the Lord is there in the midst is actually a promise to those who are in conflict. And if you do this, if you recognize that the Lord is near, if you recognize that He's coming soon or that He's in your midst, if you pray, you will have the peace that passes all understanding. And says Paul, that will guard your hearts and minds. That is shalom. In the midst of a conflict, whether it's in the church or outside the church, your heart needs to be guarded. And it is this peace, this fruit of the Spirit, that passes all understanding that will guard you from greed and bitterness, from wanting to have your own way, from fear, from doubt, from anxiety. A supernatural peace that is beyond everyone's understanding. And then finally, in verses 8 to 9, Paul reminds us of peace with God. He lists a whole catalog of virtues in verse 8. And the gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ gives us the full embodiment of all of those virtues. I could have preached this sermon on how divisions are bad for the church or how anxiety is bad for your spiritual health, how bad thoughts are bad for your character, and nobody would have disagreed, but nobody would have been helped. The divisions would still come. The anxiety would still be there. But Paul doesn't leave us helpless. In each of those areas, he gives us things to focus on. He reminds us that in verse 3, that it is the gospel that we are involved in. It is the work of Jesus. It's about the book of life. It is eternal implications, so we don't have time to bother with petty personality issues. And then he reminds us that it is Jesus Christ himself that has the peace that passes all understanding. So why be anxious? And in verse 9, he reminds us that it is the teaching about Jesus that we are to put into practice all that we have learned, all that we have received, all that we have heard by way of Christian teaching, put it into practice, the whole gospel. And that will keep us focused on what is true and honorable. He is our peace. And the peace that we experience here on earth is imperfect foretaste of the great final peace we will experience when He returns because the Lord is indeed near. His Spirit is within us. And that Spirit is the Spirit of peace. So may that peace rule in this church and rule in all of our churches. May it rule in our country. And to do that, let it rule first in our hearts in the days ahead. Amen.